You're listening to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Let's return now to a Prova Education Live program with Dr. Michael Wexler, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Associate Director of the Asthma Research Center at Brigham and Women's Hospital. This lecture is titled, Implementing the Update Guidelines in Managing Asthma in Primary Care. So we've established that Tom isn't well controlled. We've established that he's mild to moderate, probably more on the moderate side. What therapy should we start Tom on? In the guideline, the way to approach patients with asthma is someone who's not on any, on any controllers is first start off with a low-dose inhaled steroid. If someone remains poorly controlled on a low-dose inhaled steroid, Tom was on nothing, it is to go to a medium-dose inhaled steroid. Or you could add on a low-dose inhaled steroid long-acting beta agonist. As someone gets more severe, you can uh, go to a higher-dose inhaled steroid plus a long-acting beta agonist. At higher doses, you can go to, to high dose, uh, sorry, with more severity, high-dose inhaled steroid plus long-acting beta agonist, and you can consider anti-IG therapy. Alternatives for low dose are chromalin, nidocromil, a leukotriene receptor antagonist, or theophylline. In my mind, the only real uh, alternative is uh, leukotriene receptor antagonist. And then uh, alternative for step three are low dose nailed steroids plus an LTRA or one of the other options. Really, the, what we want to do is we want to give anti-inflammatory therapy to these patients. Along with beta agonists, there are potential adverse effects, so the other option is adding immu allergy immunotherapy. And I'll talk about long active beta agonists and why we should or should not be, uh, be, be doing it. But th there are risks with long active beta agonists. There have been several studies suggesting that they may not be quite so effective in everybody. They're effective in many people. But your real inclination, your knee-jerk response should be give inhaled steroids and give more inhaled steroids. If those don't work, then add on long-acting beta agonist. And I think that's the take-home message here. Um, the other important messages are that if someone isn't well-controlled, you need to assess responsiveness and step up, step up if needed. And the other things you should do is check for adherence, check their environment, Look for other comorbid conditions. What comorbid conditions? Sinus disease, reflux disease, uh, other infections, uh, allergic rhinitis. All of those can contribute adversely to asthma. If someone remains well-controlled, you can always step down, too. So if someone's well-controlled on a median dose of the lying antibiotic agonist, you can always step down. And it's an up-and-down process. Step up if needed, step down when, when, uh, when control is attained. So, Maintenance pharmacotherapies for asthma. Inhaled steroids, a lot of different choices. Fluticasone, beclomethasone, budesonide, tramcinolone, ciclesonide, mometasone. Those are all the generic names. They're all available. They're all very effective. They address the underlying inflammatory process. They result in effective symptom control. They reduce the need for rescue bronchodilator use. They improve lung function. They reduce bronchial hyperresponsiveness. They reduce exacerbations. And they can also potentially prevent airway remodeling. They have a lot of cellular effects. They uh, reduce the number of eosinophils and cytokines and mast cells, uh, cytokines for mast cells and macrophages, reduce the number of dendritic cells. They have benefits on structural cells as well. They reduce the mediators and cytokines from epithelial cells. They result in reduced endothelial cell leakage. Uh, there is less mucous gland secretion. And there is an upreg upregulation of beta receptors. 
In fact, low-dose inhaled steroids has resulted in prevention of death from asthma. This is Sammy Suisse's study from the New England Journal of Medicine show that the more canisters of inhaled steroids that you take, the less your risk of dying from asthma. If you take one canister a month or 10 canisters a year, your risk of dying from asthma is essentially zero. If you take you know, one, one to two canisters of inhaled steroids a year, your risk is significantly higher. But there are issues with inhaled steroids. One is inhaler technique the lack of acute effect. Another is uh, adverse effects and patient fears. And there are adverse effects with these therapies. They can cause skin problems in high doses. Osteoporosis has been associated with inhaled steroids. Adrenal suppression, uh, cataracts, glaucoma in kids, growth issues, uh, metabolic issues, neuropsychiatric issues. These are mostly with systemic steroids and high doses of inhaled steroids. Not with low doses of inhaled steroids. So you shouldn't be quite so weary. The other issue is not everyone responds to inhaled steroids. Here's, there, there is a distribution of response. Uh, and this is a study from uh, Malmstrom and colleagues looking at change in FEV1 over time. There are some people uh, had a significant improvement, 40 to 50% improvement in FEV1, whereas some people had a decline in FEV1 over time. So there certainly is a distribution of response we need to take, take into consideration. We talked about the guidelines. And uh, again, the preferred recommendation is going from low-dose nailed steroid to medium-dose nailed steroid. The alternative is adding on the long acting beta agonist. Um, and so I recommend the preferred, and part of that is the FDA recommendations from this year. This is uh, an article in New England Journal of Medicine this year by Badrul Chowdhury from the FDA, who said that the use of long beta agonists, by the way, first of all, is contraindicated without the use of an asthma controller medication such as an inhaled steroid. So the 2% of you said would replace it with a long beta agonist. That those people are going against FDA recommendations. Single ingredient labas should only be used in combination with an asthma controller medication. They should not be used alone. Secondly, labas should only be used long term in patients whose asthma cannot be adequately controlled on asthma controller medications. So if you can control it with inhaled steroids, control with inhaled steroids. Labas should be used for the shortest duration of time required to achieve control and discontinued if possible once asthma control is achieved. Patients should then be maintained on an asthma controller medication such as an inhaled steroid. Pediatric and adolescent patients who require the addition of a LABA to an inhaled steroid choose a combination product containing both an inhaled steroid and a LABA to ensure compliance with both medications. Now, why did they say this? Well, some of this comes from an FDA alert from five years ago that, looked at, that, that resulted from the SMART trial. They said that Long-acting beta agonists such as salmeterol have been associated with an increased risk of severe asthma exacerbations and asthma-related deaths. Deaths! Uh, and the FDA has requested the package insert uh, be changed to reflect that. Why is that? Well, there was a study called the SMART study where they took 26,000 people, so not a small study, and they randomized them to their usual uh, care with salmeterol, so usually an inhaled steroids or nothing, plus salmeterol, or usual care plus placebo. So basically, inhaled steroid plus or minus placebo. And they followed people over 28 weeks with uh, monthly uh, phone calls and, uh, and just to check and see how people were doing. And they found that there was a small but significant increase in asthma-related deaths. 13 out of 13,000 in salmeterol versus 3 out of 13,000 with, uh, with placebo. 
That's a fourfold increase. It's small, but first of all, it's one out of a thousand. Second of all, it's deaths. Third of all, uh, it's fourfold increase. In African Americans, there was a greater than fourfold increase in respiratory and asthma related events, including asthma related deaths. And there wasn't enough data on whether or not inhaled steroids could mitigate these effects. That being said, lung intermediate agonists aren't all that bad. They do improve peak flow uh, and other lung functioning disease. This is a study which looked at uh, low dose inhaled steroid plus lung intermediate agonists versus just doubling the dose of the inhaled steroid. There was greater change in peak flow. And there was a greater improvement in symptom-free days in this study. In green, this is long antibiotic agonist plus fluticasone versus fluticasone. There were uh, more symptom-free days. But I think you need to balance those benefits with the potential risk, particularly in African Americans. And that's why the FDA has come down strong and said, Really, you should be bumping up inhaled steroids before adding long-acting beta agonists. And if you're going to add long-acting beta agonists, add it, get control, and then stop it, go back to inhaled steroids. So what will a specialist do? Well, a specialist will make sure that it's asthma and will do pulmonary function testing. He'll think about zebras. Uh, you know, Churg-Strauss syndrome, it's some an area of expertise of mine. Uh, that's a syndrome associated with asthma, eosinophilia, uh, neuropathy, vasculitis, pulmonary infiltrates, and sinus disease. Uh, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, uh, bronchocentric granulomatosis. These are some of the things that, uh, that uh, specialists will think of. Um, and there's no reason for you to think of those things, frankly. You should be thinking about asthma and thinking about common things. Uh, but you should be thinking about common complicators. Uh, you know, do they have reflux disease, rhinitis, sinusitis, infection? You should examine the environment for allergens. You should also be teaching technique. These are all things that specialists will do, pulmonary specialists, allergists will do. They'll take the extra time uh, to do that. You guys are very busy dealing with diabetes and hypertension, everything, uh, that, you know, we, we have special uh, nurses that can help us as well. And then also laying out an asthma action plan. I think that's also something that you've been given is an asthma action plan. Um, the other issue that is important is trigger avoidance. And that's something that you can speak to your patients about, uh, including inhaled allergens, cat allergens, and whatnot, uh, tobacco smoke. You know, 30% of asthmatics smoke. It's incredible to me that 30% of anybody smokes, but the fact that 30% of asthmatics smoke and that 25% of kids with asthma have a parent who smokes in the home is amazing to me. Uh, pollutants and irritants, there's not much you can do about it. You know, it is what it is. Occupational exposures are a big issue. Rhinitis, sinusitis, uh, sulfites can be an issue. And then uh, use of beta blockers if there are other alternatives. Use of uh, aspirin when there are other alternatives. Um, this is an asthma action plan. This you definitely do have with you. Um, and uh, basically giving your patients, telling them what to do if their asthma is acting up and to be checking peak flows. What triggers to look for? Are they doing well? Is their breathing good or not? If they're having some problems, then they're in the yellow zone. They need to sort of start thinking about calling their doctor. And if they're having lots of problems, then they definitely need to call and they need to call in more urgently. And so it's helpful to give out. It's available from the American Lung Association, and it's, uh, it's something that I think you should give to all of your patients, an asthma action plan. So we've talked about the guidelines, talked about how to manage patients. What else are specialists thinking about that you may not be thinking about so much? What's hot? 
Well, uh, pharmacogenetics is hot. Uh, it's an area of active interest of ours. We published a $4 million study uh, on pharmacogenetics of asthma last year in The Lancet that I was the lead uh, author on. Uh, we're also looking at biomarkers, eosinophils in the sputum and uh, as biomarkers, uh, race as a biomarker, genetic biomarkers. And we're also studying new therapies. What, what uh, the years about biomarkers? We're also looking at exhaled nitric oxide. Uh, I don't know, we have... A lot of specialists, not all, uh, have NO analyzers. NO is a mediator that we make in our airways. Uh, we have these enzymes, nitric oxide synthase. Levels of NO are higher in people with asthma than non-asthmatics. Levels go down when you treat with inhaled steroids. We use that to help titrate therapy. So we're using biomarkers, both for diagnosis as well as for, di for therapy titration. Same thing with airway hyperreactivity, uh, microbial environment. We did a study looking at mycoplasma and chlamydia in the airways to see whether or not we should be treating people with antibiotics, the way we treat people with uh, peptic ulcer disease. What other therapies are out there? Newer and evolving therapies. Anti-IL-5, very exciting therapy. A couple papers in New England Journal of Medicine showing that in people who had eosinophilic asthma, there was significant reduction in exacerbations. Monoclonal antibodies uh, like anti-IG, that's currently approved by the FDA. That's omalizumab. Teotropium is another one, which I'll talk about briefly. And then something called bronchial thermoplasty. So I'll touch base on each of these briefly. This was uh, one of the studies from New England Journal from last year about mepolizumab, anti-IL-5, in patients with sputum eosinophilia. They screened people and they said, okay, if you've got more than 3% sputum eosinophils, not a routine test for you guys to do, but we do it, uh, then, and we put you on anti-IL-5 therapy. IL-5 is a cytokine that promotes eosinophilia. So if we give you anti-IL-5, how does that do? Well, Patients who had sputum eosinophilia and were given anti-IL-5 had a significant improvement in terms of asthma exacerbations compared to those who were on placebo. This is an injectable therapy, but it worked. It worked well in these patients because we were able to identify a subpopulation that might benefit. What population has more than 3%? Probably about 10 to 15% of patients with asthma but it's just a significant reduction, and these are the people who are gonna be least likely to respond. These were people who were already on inhaled steroids. What about anti-IG? Well, let me tell you a bit about how anti-IG works since it's an available therapy. IgE is released from uh, plasma cells into the circulation, and it binds to mast cells and basophils. In the presence of allergens, allergens bind to IgE on the mast cell and basophil, and when two IgEs cross-link with one another, that results in degranulation in the mast cell and release of all these mediators, histamines, proteases, heparins, uh, and as well as recruitment of eosinophils and lymphocytes that result in allergic inflammation and exacerbations. So the goal is to bind up IgE from preventing it to bind to the mast cell. It binds to the IgE binding site on the IgE to prevent it from binding to the mast cell receptor. What happens? Well, you bind up all the Ig with anti-Ig or omalizumab. It binds the free Ig. It results in a reduced amount of Ig on the cell surface. So even in the presence of allergens, there's less Ig on the mast cell surface and basophil surface, so they can't cross-link. So you get reduction in mediator release, and therefore you get reduction in asthma exacerbations.
novel idea. How does it fare? Well, there have been seven or eight large studies done looking at anti-IgE in patients with moderate severe asthma. This is just one of those studies. They're all pretty similar in terms of their findings in that here's a 50% reduction in exacerbations in patients with severe asthma who were given omelizumab compared to placebo. You know, very compelling data. And so for more severe patients who are poorly controlled, on it, not well controlled on moderate high dose of inhaled steroid plus a long-acting beta, beta agonist plus a leukotriene modifier, I'll try this. If it's available, it's the only other thing that's available. What about teatropium? Well, Spiriva, you're familiar with it for COPD, but we did a study looking at teatropium as an alternative to increasing inhaled steroids or long-acting beta agonists. And we actually found that teatropium was as effective, if not better, as an add-on therapy compared to salmeterol, and definitely better than double-dosing with beclomethasone. Now, we're contemplating doing another study looking at four times the dose of inhaled steroids, looking at subpopulations, including blacks. Uh, but teatropium added on to inhaled steroids uh, for people who were poorly controlled on low-dose inhaled steroids was effective. The last thing I'm going to talk about is something called bronchial thermoplasty. And this is an exciting, novel way of treating people with asthma. It's something that's been approved by the FDA uh, in the last six months. And it's a way to invasively treat asthma. We go in with a bronchoscope with the, with the hypothesis that people with asthma have thickened smooth muscle layer. So if we can get rid of that smooth muscle ring, perhaps by heating it, melting, you know, burning it away, then we could uh, play an impact in bronchoconstriction and asthma. So the notion is, is that if airway smooth muscle is reduced, then airway bronchoconstriction will be reduced, and therefore asthma symptoms and quality of life will potentially improve. And the hypothesis is that doing this with bronchial thermoplasty, going and heating up the airways, will result in uh, significant improvement in, in lung function. We do this bronchoscopically. We have a catheter which has a basket. It's hooked up to a radio frequency controller that heats up the airways to 65 degrees. And uh, we go in as far as we can go. Uh, to the distal bronchi as far as we can, do, we can go with a series of activations. And we're basically trying to burn up that ring of muscle. And in the New England Journal of Medicine paper that it was published a few years ago, you can see that there was a reduction in the bronchial thermoplasty group compared to the control group. Uh, with respect to exacerb severe exacerbations. Furthermore, we also did a study that was published earlier this year that was a sham controlled study where everyone got a bronchoscopy but, and everyone got the catheter put in, but half the people, or two-thirds of the people actually, had it hooked up to a real controller, and a third of them, they got no heat. And we found, again, there was a 32% decrease in exacerbations over the course of a year. So this was approved by the FDA. I went to the FDA meetings this past year to help get it approved, and, you know, I, we use it sparingly. Uh, it might increase risk of exacerbations in the short term, but over the long term, we think it's beneficial. It's also resulted in a 66% decrease in lost work, school, or activities due to asthma. So compelling data, which is what resulted in uh, its getting approved. So the bottom line for what I've told you this morning is that asthma is a prevalent disease with significant morbidity and mortality. And despite guideline therapy, many patients still do not achieve good or total disease control. But uh, one of the keys is assessing for control. 
And I think we've talked about that using the questionnaires, asking about nighttime awakenings, asking about rescue inhaler use, asking whether asthma interferes with your daily activities. So you're going to start doing that. And if you're not well controlled, you're going to bump up the inhaled steroid dose, bump it up again, maybe add a long-acting beta agonist. And if not, then refer to a specialist. The good news is, is that there are newer and investigational agents that are out there. You know, we're going to maybe start using tetropium more. Maybe that'll be added to the guidelines. Maybe we'll start giving uh, more anti-IG, which, which, which is approved, or anti-IL-5, which isn't approved, or other cytokine-based therapies. Or maybe we'll start using bronchial thermoplasty, which is approved now. For these things, you should be referring to the specialist. So for the more complicated patients, refer and ask, you know, should this patient who's already on high dose of inhaled steroids and long beta agonists be considered for some alternative? therapy. I think that it's reasonable to expect that in most patients with asthma, control of the disease can and should be achieved and maintained. This is from the guidelines. And I think that in order to achieve that, we need to, patients need to understand their disease a little bit. They need to know what constitutes control. Uh, they need to have an asthma action plan. You have one of those now. They need to how to take their rescue medications. They need to understand the roles of the different therapies, how to use their inhalers properly, and how to identify and manage uh, triggers. So the bottom line is that successful asthma education management involves education, education, and education. Education of patients, education of family members, education of primary care specialists, education of specialists. Uh, and uh, with that, I think that we can result in successful asthma management if we partner with our patients. You have been listening to a Prova Education Live program presented on ReachMD's Grand Rounds Nation. For more information on this session or to download podcasts of the nation's best Grand Rounds, visit us at ReachMD.com. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Until next time, thanks for listening.